The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The minute a woman is symptomatic, that changes the paradigm. And now it's a diagnostic paradigm where we're trying to identify what is causing her complaint, whether mass or pain or whatever. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from April 19, 2019, titled Screening for Breast Cancer in Average Risk Women, a Guidance Statement from the American College of Physicians. Joining us on this podcast is Dr. Reem Mustafa, who's a physician and has a PhD and MPH in epidemiology. She is a nephrologist at the University of Kansas and is very involved in guideline development and guideline evaluation. She's a member of the American College Physicians Guideline Committee and a co-author on this guidance statement. We hope that you will enjoy her discussion of this very important guidance statement. Reem, thanks so much for joining us on Annals on Call today. I'm really delighted that we get a chance to talk about breast cancer screening because it's such a major topic in outpatient medicine. And the ACP's guidance statement on breast cancer screening really hits all the highlights of the questions that we get from patients and that I get just from friends. So let's start out by why this is a guidance statement and not a guideline. And if you could sort of contrast those two, that would be helpful. Sure. Uh, So first, thanks, Bob, for having me in this podcast for a very, very important topic for the public and certainly for women. The guidance statement differs from a clinical guideline in several aspects. The American College of Physicians Clinical Guideline Committee develops guidance statements on topics where several clinical guidelines are available, but they're conflicting. So in these instances, the ACP aims with its guidance statement to reconcile the clinical guidelines to help clinicians provide evidence-based care for their patients. And the way we try to accomplish this on the Clinical Guideline Committee is by rigorously reviewing the available clinical guidelines and their evidence base. And we also develop subsequent guidance based on the assessment of the reported benefits, harms, patients' values and preferences, and resource implications. So unlike recommendations or guidelines, the guidance statement is not derived from what we call a de novo systematic review of the evidence. So we don't actually go and look at all the primary studies that were done. So we depend on the evidence that was published to support the other guidelines. That's great. For this guidance statement, how many guidelines did you use and which ones were valuable? We actually reviewed the seven guidelines. We have a systematic process how we identify these guidelines. And the seven we reviewed for this guidance statement were the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology, the American College of Radiology, 
the American Cancer Society, the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and the World Health Organization. And I stated these in just alphabetical order. We reviewed all these, and we also evaluated them, and we reviewed any evidence that was published to support these guidelines or as part of these guidelines. Did the grading of the guidelines have an impact on how you wrote the guidance statement? Because as I read your article, some of the guidelines met the international criteria for what guidelines should be doing, and some were... uh, I think a nice way to say a little bit looser with how they made their decisions. That's actually correct. So the way we do the process with guidance statement is we do use a validative tool that is published to evaluate guidelines. And we do this, multiple people among the group do this independently. So we review the guidelines, we evaluate them. And like you mentioned, some do better than others uh, for different reasons. We do place more weight as we go through our guidance statement on the guidelines that are more rigorously developed and that have published their evidence to support the guidelines more clearly. And in this case, we had four guidelines that were clearly rated higher as far as guideline development methodology and being explicit about the methods they use and the data they considered when they developed their guidelines. And these four guidelines were the United States Preventive Services Task Force, the American Cancer Society, uh, the World Health Organization, and the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care. So that's really helpful. And the details are in the paper, which is well worth reading. As soon as I decided that we're going to look at this topic, I knew that we had to talk about women from 40 to 49, because that seems to me to be the most controversial topic in breast cancer screening. Does your guidance statement resolve that controversy? And maybe it's worthwhile to start and talk about what patients have risk factors that don't fit this recommendation, and who were we really talking about in 40 to 49, and how do we deal with that controversial topic? Yeah, certainly the 40 to 50 years old age group is the most controversial. However, very interesting. If you actually look at the four guidelines, as I mentioned, uh, that we really very carefully reviewed, it's very interesting that both the World Health Organization, the USBS Task Force, and the Canadian Task Force all say start at age 50. The USBS task force adds to say, have some discussion at age 40 to 49. The American Cancer Society says start screening at age 45 and have discussion at 40 to 44. So really, no guideline recommends actually starting screening before age 45. And only the American Cancer Society talks about start screening at 45, but all the rest talks about start screening at 50. So while that age group is extremely, extremely important, there doesn't appear to be that much disagreement. In the American College of Physicians, our guidance statement states to actually that an average risk woman age 40 to 49, clinicians should discuss whether to screen for breast cancer with mammography before age 50 years old. We also state that discussion should include the potential benefits and harms and women's preferences. 
and that potential harms outweigh the benefit in most women for age 40 to 49. So when we're talking about a woman, in general, our guidance statement applies to average risk women. Those are women who do not have breast cancer and never had breast cancer in the past, did not have radiation exposure in the past, and also do not have any of the genetic mutations that increases the risk for breast cancer. However, if you look through all the guidelines that we reviewed, the definition of an average risk woman does vary. And although some risk factors like early menarche or late menopause or oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapy and even breast density and family history all put women at a greater risk for breast cancer than women without these risk factors, but the evaluated guideline generally included women with these factors under the umbrella of average risk women. So it's just very important to highlight this because these are factors that may very well play a role in the discussion and the decision and the shared decision making and also for example the racial and ethnic background all are extremely important but they will be an important part of that shared decision making where people may decide that the woman and her physician may agree to go ahead and screen um, during that age group, but it's not the recommendation for the general group. Well, that's really helpful. You did mention benefit and harms, and I think this would be a good place to discuss the harms of breast cancer screening. Because if we're going to do shared decision-making with our patients, they need to understand what the potential benefits and what the potential harms are. I think that's extremely important, and I agree. Um, the harms of breast cancer screening, it's a long list. And I just want to highlight here that when we talk about harms, we're not only talking about anxiety or a psychological risk. The harms do include unnecessary procedures like requiring biopsies, which has their own complications with them. The harms also include what we call overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And when we talk about overdiagnosis and overtreatment, we're really talking, and this is a hard concept for many people to wrap their head around. It's also a hard concept even for researchers to define clearly because there's just limited evidence following many women up for years to see kind of what happens with them. But there is a group of women who potentially have breast cancer that even if it was not diagnosed and not treated, would not really cause any harm on the long term. And so it would not lead to death from breast cancer and it would not lead to complications from breast cancer. However, these were women who we would call overtreated when they get treatment with chemotherapy and surgery. And those are toxic treatments that have their own harms and complications. And in this group of women who would not have benefited from the treatment because on the long term, they would have not really had progressive cancer that led to death or other complications, they would also have suffered the complications of the treatment. So all this was kind of considered together. We looked at the potential harms. That's really helpful. After we get out of that 40 to 49 controversial area, where some women are going to choose to go ahead and get screened, and some physicians will even recommend it, 
between 50 and 70, there doesn't seem to be any disagreement with anyone that the benefits greatly exceed the harms for women in this group. Tell us more about that. Yes, that's correct. So if we think about the evidence, and I'm going to try to now mention just very, very few numbers, but to put things in perspective. If you look at the woman age 50 to 59, um, the evidence show that on average, there will be eight fewer breast cancer deaths per 10,000 women screened over 10 years. Uh, well, in age 60 to 69 years, there will be around 21 fewer breast cancer deaths per 10,000 women screened over 10 years. So we consider these as potential benefits. However, even in that group, about 20% of women diagnosed with breast cancer over a 10 years period will be overdiagnosed and likely to be overtreated, meaning that they would not be bothered by or die uh, of breast cancer if not diagnosed or treated. So they would not receive the benefit and they would only experience the harm. But giving the benefit that we mentioned of potentially fewer breast cancer deaths, the committee felt that that balance does kind of lead to a decision to screen in that age group. But again, highlighting that it's likely that women from age 60 to 69 will have higher benefits because the absolute risk of death from breast cancer in that group is higher, even within that group from 50 to 70. What about women above the age of 70? So women above the age of 70, from 70 to 74, there may be a 13 fewer death per 10,000 women screened over 10 years. However, there is really very, very limited evidence for benefits above the age of 74. So that group appears to maybe until 75 that there is benefit above 75. There is unlikely benefit. And the reason for that is also that we always consider the benefit over the lifespan. And we talk about in the guidance statement the issue of life expectancy. So our guidance statement states that an average risk woman aged 75 years or older or in women with a life expectancy of 10 years or less, clinicians should discontinue screening for breast cancer. The idea here is, you know, we realize that the age itself is a number. But we're kind of trying to consider the functionality, the overall functionality of a woman and her life expectancy. And I assume this clearly should be part of shared decision making with the physician pointing out the benefits and the harms at any age and life expectancy, etc., as best as you can do that. Now, up to now, we've been talking about uh, screening mammography. There are other potential ways to screen for breast cancer, and it would be worthwhile to know where we stand with clinical breast exams, with MRIs, ultrasound. What do you think about dense breasts? Yeah, great questions. So again, I kind of want to start here by re-emphasizing that we are talking about asymptomatic women who have no concerns. And generally, when we looked at the evidence for clinical breast exam, it doesn't appear to have benefits of actually decreasing mortality or identifying cancer early where it may make a difference in the treatment strategy. For that, our guidance statement states that an average risk woman of all ages, clinicians should not use clinical breast exam to screen for breast cancer. Again, this is not if a woman has a lump or has a concern. 
It's just to do this exam that will take about 10 minutes to be done correctly, where it typically will identify masses that are larger. So that's where our guidance stands on clinical breast exam. Let's just stop right there because I want to reemphasize something that you said. So if a woman feels like she felt a mass, then that changes the whole conversation. Then you do the exam, assess the mass, and then even if you weren't timed to do a mammogram or some other study, that would trigger a further workup because the woman felt the mass and obviously is concerned. Absolutely. And I want to actually say that none of the four guidance statements we have applied to that woman. Everything we're talking about here is about women who have no complaints, they have not felt any masses, and they're completely asymptomatic. The minute a woman is symptomatic, that changes the paradigm, and now it's a diagnostic paradigm where we're trying to identify what is causing her complaint, whether mass or pain or whatever it is. Thanks. And I'm going to reemphasize that because I love the way you said it. We're only talking in the guidance statement about screening. We're not talking about diagnostic evaluation. And that's the way you said it. And I think that's important for everybody to remember. Now, what about MRI? So MRI, none of the guidelines we reviewed recommended MRI or ultrasound as the first line screening method in asymptomatic average women. Um, again, I just want to reemphasize, MRI may have a role in the diagnostic strategy if something has been identified. But as a screening modality for asymptomatic women, no guidelines have recommended it. So that's good. I think I really only have two other questions. The first question would be dense breasts. Yes, yes. That was I was contemplating if I should start talking about dense breasts. So. Well, uh, if you do outpatient medicine, this comes up way too often. I fully agree. And I do think that is one of the areas where there is a true evidence gap that is going to need to be evaluated because all the evidence we looked at and the guidelines we looked at, it does not appear to distinguish between women who have dense breasts or not. So they're all under the same umbrella. However, we do know that increased breast density does seem to reduce the sensitivity and specificity of the mammogram of detecting cancer. So it decreases the ability of a mammogram to identify cancer if it exists. And it also it leads to more women being labeled as they have masses when they don't. So we know that there are limitations to using mammogram in that group. However, I think the question then becomes, what do you do? And we do not have a good evidence to guide us in that group. It appears also that when you look at mammogram screening randomized trial, which is best study designed to evaluate the efficacy of a screening modality, they included women with dense breasts, but it did not provide mortality data according to that group. So there may be available evidence that some additional analyses and studies will be able to look at more carefully, but that data is not available at this point. And I guess the other thing that some women will find controversial 
if I read this right, is the concept of every other year screening with normal mammograms as opposed to yearly screening. Yeah, that's another area where it's really all about weighing what we talk about, the benefits and harm. And if you look at the WHO, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and the Canadian Task Force, all recommended for biannual screening, which means every two years. The American Cancer Society recommended annual screening only for the 45 to 54 and then biannual screening for the more than 55. So there is general agreement among the societies that the biannual screening seems the screening that will give the most benefit, identifying the highest number of cancers and at the same time the lowest harm. So weighing this trade-off between benefits and harm seems to be best achieved at the biennial screening. And that's really where we went with. But that's another thing. There is a huge difference between having a completely negative mammogram and then deciding to go the biennial screening. While if the mammogram for this year shows something, that decision completely changes. So again, we're talking here about negative exam, asymptomatic woman. And if any of these criteria that I just mentioned is not met, that just changes the whole decision-making. The decision to go with annual may be very appropriate, even less than annual. Well, I really love how you have made it very clear that the guidance statement is not a checklist cookbook for how to screen, but you always have to take the woman's concerns, the woman's symptoms, other potential risk factors into consideration as you're developing a shared decision-making plan. And this is a great example of that, and you pointed this out over and over again. In the last minute, if you could just summarize the most important message that you would want to give to both women and their physicians on this topic. Well, I think the take-home message that I would like a woman to keep in mind is for them to be an effective partner in shared decision-making, they really need to be informed. And in our guidance statement, we do have talking points to patients, and we try to present the numbers in the simplest way we can while maintaining the validity of the data. So they can actually look at the numbers themselves and weigh in their own values and their own preferences on what to do. And also, I want them to know that I suspect that it will require that they go and read and become more informed and also reflect on their own values. That's extremely important. And the other message I want to say is it is really quite humbling to see the importance of looking at all these conflicting guidelines and trying to reconcile them. And we still have a lot of evidence gaps that we as a research community have to prioritize and make sure that we identify and find the appropriate evidence to answer these questions. I think the woman with dense breast and the racially and ethnic diverse group are important groups that we have to focus on in the next few years. Well, Reem, thank you so much. This has been very educational for me, and I hope for our listeners, taking a very complex topic and making very clear how you and the other members of ACP's Guidelines Committee tried to synthesize this and give us some guidance for practice. So once again, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bob.
Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This guidance statement and Dr. Mustafa's excellent discussion of how it was developed and what it means really puts breast cancer screening into an important context of shared clinical decision-making. Dr. Mustafa pointed out very clearly that this guidance statement only applies to women who are of normal risk who are being screened. This is not any guidance for diagnostic evaluation of a woman who feels a lump or has breast pain, etc. The controversial area of women aged 40 to 49 is well handled both in the guidance statement and in Dr. Mustafa's comments. Clearly, between 50 and 70, all guidelines recommend mammography screening. She also addressed several other interesting topics for which we really don't have enough evidence to have a guidance statement. We really are not sure what to do about dense breasts. We do not have enough data on the value of MRI or ultrasound. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and that it will help you make decisions about breast cancer screening in the future. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. Mm